the last time I stood up here was about 11 or 12 years ago. It was on a summer series, and I had been uh, over in the eastern part of the state helping with a, a mission trip. I was preaching in Nashville at the time and drove up there to help our youth group on a mission trip. And the plan was to leave on Wednesday afternoon, drive here and speak, and then drive back to Nashville. Except I woke up that Wednesday morning, and literally my back would not move. And I thought, this is, this is not, not good. So I got in a car, achingly drove back to Nashville, got just enough medication on my back to drive back up to Bowling Green to preach, and the whole evening was doing this because I could not move my neck or my back the entire time I spoke. I'm so glad to be here where I can just move around. It's great to finally get to, to preach in a comfortable way uh, from, from this pulpit. What, what a wonderful weekend this is. It was, a, in many ways, a political ploy, but it was one that was compelling, and in a lot of ways it was very effective. It was a single-digit number, and it was a mathematical term, but it was used so effectively and so often that it became part of just our national conversation. In fact, it still is from time to time, though not as often. For about a year or though so, you could barely turn on the news without hearing the term at some point during a broadcast or reading a website article that dealt with the economy and problems with that. What was it? Well, it was the 1%. The idea continually came up about how you had this top 1% of wage earners, of income holders, and how that was unfair to everyone else in society. And you, you may agree or disagree with the political stance. That's not why I'm here. Either way, I suppose, is fine. And I really suppose it's the kind of debate that's going to continue in most societies until the Lord returns. But what far too many people missed was that many of the people, not all of them, but many of the people, especially in some positions of power, who were making the argument against the 1%, were by definition also in the 1%. No, they weren't necessarily billionaires or multi-billionaires, but they made enough money that if you actually look beyond our own borders, they were in the top 1% of income earners on the entire planet. Because in 2021... If you individually, not as a family, but you individually, earned right at $60,000 per year, you were in the top 1% of everyone on the face of the earth as far as income goes. And a U.S. congressman makes slightly more than $60,000 per year. And I would guess that there are some in this room, if not quite a few, who regularly or maybe often make that much money. I didn't come here today to rail against politicians. I didn't come to talk necessarily about income inequality. I didn't really come to talk about the 1%, even with a good Bernie Sanders accent. But I wanted you to, to think about that concept, to remind us of something we thought about as a nation for several months, but also to remind us that the vast majority of us are rich. We are very rich. We are historically rich. And you may not be a CEO or a board chair or a celebrity, but consider for a moment, who was the wealthiest person who ever lived? 
Well, if you look at real data and people who study such things, they would say that Solomon probably is the wealthiest person who's ever walked the face of the earth. I've seen some try to calculate how much wealth Solomon actually had if you translate into our modern terminology. And, of course, you have to adjust for inflation, all those things. But you'll see numbers to say that Solomon held wealth equal to somewhere in the range of $2.2 trillion. Just this week, the wealthiest person in the world changed. Did you know that? It's no longer Bezos, it's no longer Zuckerberg, it's no longer, it's actually the guy that runs Louis Vuitton. $245 billion, probably changed since then, but think about that for a moment. That's somewhere in the range of 9 to 10 times less than Solomon held. But even if you only have a few hundred or a few thousand dollars to your name, Consider this for a moment. How good was Solomon's refrigerator? How much cell signal did Solomon get inside the palace? How good was Solomon's air conditioner? Not the girls saying they're with the fans, but how good was Solomon's actual air conditioner? You see, you may not have golden goblets, you may not have a menagerie from around the world bringing in, brought in on ships, but you and I enjoy things and very often take them for granted that would have literally boggled the mind of the richest person who's ever walked the face of this earth. And it's with that that we come to our text this morning in the opening verses of James chapter 5. Because in those verses, James writes about the injustice and the oppression that can all too easily come when there is both financial inequity and a lust for power. Some have, we won't spend much time on this, we'll mention it in a time or two, but some have suggested that the rich, and we'll read the verses in a moment, but the rich that are referenced here in James 5 were Jewish Sadducees who typically were wealthier, more well-connected, uh, of the sects of the Jews, that can't be said with certainty. But if you study this text, you're going to come across that a few times. So I just want to make mention of it. But what can be said with certainty is simply something that each of us knows intellectually, but sometimes we don't want to live. And that is that money and finances and stuff are a barrier and can be very dangerous. About 15 years ago, there was a man in St. Charles County, Missouri, who was imprisoned, and he thought he'd figure out a very easy way to escape prison. Because as he made his rounds each day doing the things he did, he realized there was a fire escape door that was never guarded. And being the brilliant person he was, he thought, I'll just wait till I walk by that and rush out. And that's exactly what he did. He went by the door, opened the door, and rushed out. What he didn't realize was there was a reason it wasn't guarded. The door led nowhere except to a brick wall. And so he left, he left the prison to go get treated for head wounds at the local hospital. Money is like that. It is enticing, it is empowering, but it provides such a barrier to anyone who does not allow God to control his or her attitude toward money and the use of it. Think of a couple of verses. In the Old Testament, Solomon wrote, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, but he adds sorrow with it. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 22. More famously to us, Paul would write that it's the love of money that's the root of all types of evil. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. 
The question becomes for our life, how do we balance that? One scholar wrote, When wealth is devoid of the Lord's blessing, trouble accompanies it in the form of envy, injustice, oppression, theft, murder, abuse, and misuse. You see, how we view money initially and how we use or utilize it throughout our lives makes all the difference. Let's read our text, James 5, 1 through 6, and then we'll study under three observations and four applications. James 5, beginning of verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. There are a lot of things we can consider, but let's, make, let's divide the text up into three broad observations, and then we'll make four points of application in the few minutes we have at the end. Observation number one is a warning to unbelievers. A warning to unbelievers. It's not unique, but it's fairly rare in the New Testament for a writer of the epistles, the letters, to seemingly write to non-Christians. But it seems that at least in part throughout this paragraph, that's what James is doing. In fact, some of you might have been here yesterday. I believe it was Doug Burleson who talked about James chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It's that part of James chapter 2. Way back there, James had said, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are, you, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, in that text, James 2, 6, and 7, those who are rich are contrasted with, quote-unquote, you. That is, the faithful Christians, especially, it seems, those who weren't wealthy. But now in our text, in James chapter 5, it seems that James is coming back to that very same theme and, and almost speaks, if I may put it this way, he almost speaks like an Old Testament prophet. It's almost as if he calls outside of God's people for a moment to warn unbelievers about the sin in which they find themselves and it's the same sin he had talked about way back up in chapter 2. The misuse of money and the injustice and unfair treatment to which it was leading. As we said a few minutes ago, there are some scholars who believe that the rich are the Jews, maybe the Sadducees, and those who do, and this is why I want to mention that, those who do see that here suggest that maybe this is a subtle prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem because all their wealth would basically be ruined and destroyed in that awful calamity. We can't know that for certain if that's what's in view. In fact, I'm not sure it is, but I wanted to mention it because some of you have studied this deeper than I have, or you'll go home and study it later, and you'll go, wait a minute, he didn't mention the Sadducees. Yeah, I did, just there, let's move on. But, but it, even if that's not the case, it does illustrate the point because the language that James uses as he opens this chapter is interesting. Because did you notice he does not say that these things will happen? He writes as if they already have happened or are happening. Now again, it seems in doing that, he's almost speaking like the Old Testament prophets. 
using vivid language and saying it's as if these things had already happened to illustrate his point or to make his point stronger. But notice just some of what he talks about in verses 2 and 3, for example. Your riches have rotted. And rotted is a good translation, by the way. The word can also mean decay. Some of the things that people might store up, things, things like foodstuffs, for example, just decay away. They can rot away. They're good to have, but we think like the rich fool sometimes that we can just store them up and store them up and all will be well. And that's not how it works. Your garments are moth-eaten. And notice again, your garments are moth-eaten. Now, in our culture, we've kind of done away with that for the most part. We don't have to deal with moths eating our clothes usually, but clothing and tapestries and bedding and those sorts of things still wear out. They tear. They can be destroyed so easily. But in a culture like theirs, where certain garments were a sign of great wealth and position and power, to have those garments just eaten by an insect, how embarrassing would that have been? But also how eye-opening should it have been? Your gold and silver have corroded, he says. And that one's odd. Because things like gold and silver, precious metals, don't necessarily corrode. Especially gold doesn't necessarily corrode. Or literally, literally the, the phrase is rust to the bottom. That's literally the language. So it seems as if maybe he's speaking of something that can wear out to some degree, but maybe he's using it figuratively. Because just hoarding up gold, silver, well, it's useless. And if we do that, it can corrode us. It can grow our life, our mind, our soul, especially if we hoard those things up with no greater purpose in mind whatsoever. And I think that's what James is getting at as he writes that this will be evidence against the rich. It will eat their flesh like fire. Fire, as you know, is often used of judgment in Scripture, and that's what's meant here. But the picture of it eating like fire, what a vivid picture. Fire will consume everything in its path. And just so, those earthly riches will consume the rich and eat up everything about their lives. And why? James answers his own question. They've stored it up in the last days. Their treasures are here in a world that will be destroyed instead of doing what James' half-brother Jesus had said and storing up treasures not on the earth, but rather storing up treasures in heaven. And all that is tied up back in verse 1 with the statement, to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Notice that it's not really a call for repentance. These are unbelievers. They, they won't necessarily weep at their sins. What will they weep about? That they've lost their stuff. They'll weep that this bad stuff is happening to them. All they've stored up is being destroyed. Whatever would take away their riches doesn't really matter. What matters is this is where their heart is, and they would be just devastated at this financial loss and what it represented, the loss of power and prestige, instead of seeing it as a wake-up call to turn to God. Broad observation number two is a cry of the workers. The crying of the workers. If a sin is not, be, not repented of, it's nearly always followed by more sin. The greed of these rich people was sin. That's bad enough. We'll talk more about that again when we make application at the end. 
But the text continues by telling us not just that they were greedy and hoarding stuff up, but that they were defrauding other people. And so their greed led to acts that were unjust and uncaring. And it's interesting that James begins at the beginning of verse 4 by saying that the wages are crying out against the rich people. But then he makes it personal to make sure they get the point and saying that the workers themselves were crying out to the Lord due to these unjust practices. But here is something that's interesting. The word cries are not the same thing. We'll get to that in a moment. But get the picture in your mind. James basically takes us in our mind's eye out to the fields when harvest time has passed. That the harvesters have mowed, literally collected the fields. You can see them tired from their work. Maybe you can see them cleaning off their implements or maybe get, finally getting a drink of water at the end of the day. And that's what the workers are doing. What are the rich doing? They're not paying them what was promised. Now pause for a moment because that word picture may bring to mind one of the parables of Jesus. You remember the parable where some workers were called out into the field and were told, if you work all day, I'll pay you a denarius, a day's wage. And they did, but then later in the day, some others were called out. What were they promised? They weren't promised a denarius, were they? I'll pay you what's due. Put it in our language. I'll pay you a fair share. And at the end of the day, the man paid everybody the same. But the point was, and what gives the parable its punch, is that they were all paid at the end of the day. The problem came because it was a quote-unquote different of, I worked longer and they were, but they all were paid. Contrast that with what James is saying the rich were actually doing in his day and time. They were defrauding, literally, they were depriving away from the workers. They had either promised a certain amount and were not paying the full amount, or they were not paying at all when they had said, that's what I'm going to do at the end of the work day, or at the end of the work season. But I want you to think for a moment about the workers themselves. James writes that the wages have cried, but you, the workers, have cried. And they're not the same word. The word for wages is a word that I've heard means to croak like a raven. I've never really heard someone do that. I'm not, please don't give me an impression. I don't want to hear that this morning. But that's not the word that James uses when he says the workers have cried. I'm told that this is the only time this word is found in the New Testament. The word for the workers crying. But I'm told it's found many times in classical Greek, going back to the Iliad, the Odyssey, Homer's days, that sort of thing. And it was a word that was used for a cry of help, but Strong's adds that it was a cry of help for vengeance. That's the word that James chooses. And here's what I want you to consider for a moment. There is no rebuke from God or from James by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for these laborers, these workers, crying out to God for this injustice. And that is so vital for us to consider. We need to balance things. A passage like this is not giving us license to just moan and groan about every slight or every tiny hurt we may ever feel. There is no extra reward for righteousness for being more moaning and groaning. That's not the point. But it is also true that when there is injustice, yes, God already knows, but he is more than willing to hear his faithful children call out to him about those matters. This was a picture of true defrauding. 
This was a picture of true injustice. And it was right for these people to cry out to God even for vengeance in that situation. Do you think that's a balance our culture doesn't need to hear? We need to teach people on one side of the ledger that there are going to be some hurts and slights and difficulties in this world just because we are people. And sometimes some things just have to be born because we are human and because everybody goes through times of struggle. That needs to be said. In other words, you don't get to be more righteous just because you go through more struggles or you get to moan and groan more. That needs to be said for one side. But on the other side, we need to tell a whole lot of our people that when there is injustice, it is God's people who need to be the ones who call it out. We should be the ones who cry out to God for those matters. We never need to make them up, certainly. We don't need to be ones just searching for them to look for everything that's wrong in the world. But where we see them, it is right for God's people to cry out to him about injustice. Broad observation number three is the hearing of the Lord. Are those cries heard? Oh, I love the terminology that James uses. Those cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What a picture. If you think about it for a moment, we don't read the phrase Lord of hosts anywhere near as much in the New Testament as we read it in the Old Testament. And I get that some of that's because the Old Testament's longer. But this is a fairly rare usage of that phrase in the New Testament. But when you read it in the Old Testament, what you're reading is a phrase that can be translated as the Lord of those who march out. Now put that in this context. It is to his ears, it is in his ears, excuse me, that these cries are going. In other words, the cries have reached the ears of the one who can command for these things to be taken care of. The cries have reached the ears of the one that if you're the one doing the oppressing or being unjust, you don't want his ears to hear them because he can shut it down. That's the one who hears these things. What an image. But the text really goes on to say that God had already heard or maybe better said he'd already seen. Because again, look at what James says in verses 5 and 6. We've read it before. Let's read it again. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Put that in our own terminology for a second. These rich people have filled their lives with luxury, but they're doing so without even thinking beyond this life. It's like a day of slaughter. It's as if they're fattening themselves up like cattle only to be killed. And it goes so far as to say they've murdered other people. Now, depending on the commentator you read, some suggest maybe that's literal. Maybe they had so much power that they literally just killed people and got away. That's, that's certainly possible. With James chapter 2 and verse 6, again, I believe what Burleson talked about yesterday, with, with that passage in view, they for sure had skewed the hands of justice against people who couldn't defend themselves. But I think probably more what's in view here, or more likely in view here, is that the murder is figurative. Speaking of Brother Burleson, he's walking the back door. Hey, Doug. <laughs> now, did you get that right yesterday? I'm just making sure. Okay, good. All right. 
It could be figurative, though, and I believe it is, of by not paying the wages and by defrauding, they were killing their workers. I was in Kirk Brothers' class the last hour, and he brought this up. I know my son, I said, he's taking my stuff. In that day and time, for many people, that day's wage was what you had. And so when these people were defrauded of their wages, they weren't going to eat that night. Their family was not going to eat that night. Or if they got some kind of disease because of their work or just because of conditions, they weren't going to have the money to get any kind of care whatsoever. And the heart of those who were defrauding the wages, the heart of the rich was so callous that they did not care. They didn't care that either literally they were murdering people or using the justice system or injustice system or by defrauding wages, they were causing people to die. They did not care. Now, let me say this, because again, some of you say this more deeply than I have and we'll study it later again. I know that there is some argument in the commentaries and things uh, in verse 6 about the righteous person. Um, Some suggest it's a reference to Jesus. That's possible, but I don't think that's the case here. Uh, A.T. Robertson and others make compelling arguments that the original language that James is writing about a group of people in dealing with the righteous person as a collective group. Maybe we could say a class of people, if you want to think of it that way, than, than the individual. Whether you agree or disagree, the point is still the same. The point is the calloused heart of those who would do this to other people. I really don't care if people live or die. I really don't care. That's the heart that these people had gotten to. They had their luxury. They had their stuff. They had the ease. They remind you of certain people in some of Jesus' stories, don't they? And I've got what I want, and so I really do not care about you. And the cry goes up to God, and praise God, he hears it. The one who can take care of it is the one to whom they cried. What a reminder that God hears his people when there are times of injustice. We may not understand, in fact, I don't think we can understand why God allows these things to go on, especially if we are the one that's being oppressed or being treated in an unjust way. But passages like this, excuse me, remind us that God knows full well what is going on and he actually sees it better than anyone. And it reminds us that God does hear when we cry out to him, knowing that he is the one who can take care not just of an injustice done to me or to my group of people, but God can take care of all injustice and he will. He will. It may not seem like it in the moment, And it may not happen in this life. But all injustice will be shown for what it is on the day of judgment. Now, what are some takeaways we can gain from this passage? We've tried to make a few practical statements as we've gone through the text. But I want to make sure we have them in our minds. So let's close in the last 1251, 1250, 1249 that we have left making four points of application. One, stuff is alluring but transient. Everyone in this room knows that. 
Many in this room could quote verse after verse after verse or account after account after account that proves that to us. Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. The Bible beginning to end reminds us of that fact. And the fact that it mentions it so often is part of the power. The Bible doesn't just warn of the allure or the temptation of money and stuff in just some random verse somewhere. It comes back to the subject over and over and over again, including here, in very graphic and powerful ways. Having stuff is not wrong. Even being rich is not wrong. But in those riches comes a great level of responsibility and, yes, often its own level of temptation. And that includes how we treat other people. People will live forever, either in heaven or hell. Stuff will be destroyed, either over time here or when time ends. But too often, we are putting our trust and our position and our reputation with the stuff that's going to be destroyed and not with the people who are going to live forever. And that's easy to preach standing right here. And to go get in a car in a little while and go to a restaurant and spend a little money or swipe a card. It's a whole lot harder to live. Because it means I have to put my trust in something I can't put my fingers on. Or see the amount grow on this computer screen. It will all be destroyed. How I treat other people can make a difference in whether they live forever or are destroyed. Application number two, sin follows sin. Greed is a sin. We need to say that. The Old Testament makes it clear, the New Testament makes it clear, so I'm not excusing greed. But greed was not the only sin of the rich people being talked about in this passage. God saw their greed, of course. What we spent most of our time thinking about this morning is what that greed led to. Things like injustice and hard-heartedness and other things. That reminder should help us to realize that sin leads to more sin if we don't root it out. Isn't that part of what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount? The outward stuff matters, but the inward stuff matters. And one of the reasons for that is if we don't take care of the inward stuff, the outward stuff's going to come out. Right? And too often, we want to deal with the outward stuff and not the inward stuff because it's easier. You know, it's, it's not, for most of us, it's not hard not to kill anybody. Okay? It's, just, it's just not the hardest thing in the world. But man, there's some people I struggle not to hate. Why do you think the Hebrews writer talks about the root of bitterness? Because it will take over everything else. The sin will lead to sin. Bitterness will lead to hatred, lust will lead to fornication, pride will lead to division. And here's the scary thing. It will just keep going, and we may not even know, if I may put it this way, what tentacles are going to come next. The classic case, of course, is David. What started out as, quote-unquote, simply not fulfilling his role as king and going out to battle ended up in adultery and murder and more. But sadly, we can often only connect the dots after the fact. So we need to root out the sin as soon as we spot it through using the mirror of God's word, which James also writes about, by confessing it to the Lord and doing our best to make things right so that sin doesn't follow sin. I stop it right there, or really, more correctly, I allow God to stop it right there. Application three, speaking out for the oppressed 
is right. This is something I want to infer from the text. It makes me somewhat sad that the poor in James chapter 5 had to cry out for themselves. Why was there no one else standing up for them and crying out for the injustice that was going on so clearly among them? I may not have a lot of social standing. I may not be well connected. But if there is injustice, true injustice, and I see it, I need to lovingly, yes, but clearly call it out for what it is. Being unjust to people based on economics or social status or race or any other factor such as that is absolutely wrong. Full stop. And God's people should be the ones who shed light on dark situations. We should do so lovingly, yes. And we should always do so in truth, never skewing facts or making things up. But the Old Testament and New Testament both make it clear that God hates injustice and people dare, his people dare not try to stand idly by while we can at least say what's going on, even if we can't change everything about it. And application four, obviously, is stating injustice to God is a good thing. It is fine, to a certain extent, to want a government program to help with injustice. It is fine, to a certain extent, to have nonprofits to help with unjust situations. But if I may just say this clearly, too often, the one we fail to turn to is God. We turn to government as God, we turn to 501c3s as God, and we forget to let God be God. God heard the cries of those who are being treated poorly, and God is the only one who can truly do something about a, t- a time and a situation of injustice. If you are being treated un- truly unjustly, take it to his throne of grace. If you see injustice occurring, pray to God for wisdom. Pray to God for strength to help graciously but boldly in those situations. But never leave God out of the picture. Compared to the rest of the world, I'm rich. And the odds are you are also. And you say, but wait a second. We're believers. So this text doesn't really apply to us because he's talking to rich who aren't really believers. Yet yeah, does. Because if I'm not careful, the allure of the riches can take my heart away from God. And when that happens, I'm the one being described in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. Our God is a God of justice. Our God will make all things right. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're powerful or weak, whether formerly you are educated or uneducated, and through the pen of the half-brother of our Lord, he is saying to us through this paragraph, Don't trust in stuff. Trust in me. And all will be made right in the end. Thank you for your attention this morning.